Dear Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have faithfully given us an opportunity to come back to a study that I long to continue and to finish. And uh, it moved to a new place and a new day, and it's a different crowd, Father, but it's the same word, the same spirit teaching, the same truth. And for your body, Father, it's going to have the same result. It's going to build us up. It's going to teach us more about who you are and who we are and why we need to deal with our lives in ways that will reflect you more. And we ask, Lord, that you'd uh, show us that. Please help us to understand difficult things and to uh, keep our energy on the text and attentive in the end of a day, perhaps when some of us are a bit weary from a day of work and uh, school or whatever is filled our day. And I I ask, Lord, that you would just uh, give us renewed energy for a a time of study that will be important to us one day, we're sure. Uh, If not now, certainly in the kingdom to come, which you will describe to us in such great detail in this book. So, Lord, bless our time, and in the weeks to come, add to our numbers so that we may share what we know with others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, after that long break I mentioned, we're finally ready to resume. Chapter 16 is part of a section that we're in now called Israel's Excuses. When Ezekiel started telling the exiles that they were enduring God's judgment for their disobedience, the people, the stubborn people who were in exile, kept saying to Ezekiel, you're getting it wrong. We don't believe you. Never mind that we're in exile. We don't believe you. And they offered alternative explanations, or I'm going to call them excuses, for why they need not be worried despite all that Ezekiel was telling them. Altogether in the scriptures, in this part of the book, the Lord records eight excuses that they were using. And then for each of these excuses, the Lord gives Ezekiel a response to give back to the people, to explain to the people why their excuse is nonsense. All right, so it's kind of a very interesting little back and forth. The excuses run from chapter 12 to 19. So eight chapters to cover eight excuses. And we're looking specifically at the fifth one. So we're at the fifth excuse. To make things even a little more confusing for you tonight, the Lord's response to their fifth excuse began in chapter 15. And it finishes in chapter 16. Now you might have said, well, Steve, that was poor planning. Why didn't you just wrap that one up before you stopped the study? Well... Take a glance back at chapter 15. It happens to be the shortest chapter in Ezekiel. Now look back at chapter 16, and it happens to be by far the longest chapter in the book of Ezekiel. In fact, chapter 16 is the longest single prophecy in the Old Testament and the longest allegory in the entire Bible. Tonight we're going to do a quick review of 15 getting into 16, do part of 16 and finish up with 16 in a future week and move on. But 15 and 16 are two allegories that work together. An allegory is a story in which the characters and the events stand for some other set of characters and events. So both of these work together, chapter 15 and 16, to paint a vivid and graphic picture for the people of Israel about why their fifth excuse was nonsense. We're going to look at the excuse and we're going to look at his response. The point in all of this, of course, is for the Lord to tell Israel, stop fooling yourself by thinking that that I'm obligated to protect you under any circumstances just because we happen to be in covenant together. That, In other words, don't think I'm not going to allow the city of Jerusalem to be captured or the temple to be destroyed or all the people to be taken out because those things have already started to happen, self-evidently. And the covenant doesn't guarantee anything with regard to those things. Already seeing these things happen, they were so rebellious, they kept telling themselves, now we'll be okay, the calamity is, is not going to keep going. All right, so the fifth excuse is this. 
And this is coming out of what we studied before in 15. The fifth excuse was God, by his covenant, was obligated to save them. So the prophecies that Ezekiel kept giving them, that a third wave was coming, and that the city would be completely wasted, can't be true. Because if that were true, it violates the covenant, which is nonsense. So look at what he says in 15. Now, 15 is so short, I'm going to read the whole thing. One fell swoop. This is just recap. Chapter 15. Here's his response to that excuse. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Or can men take a peg from it from which to hang any vessel? If it had been put into the fire for fuel and the fire had consumed both of its ends and its middle part had been charred, is it then useful for anything? Behold, while it is intact, it is not made into anything. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it still be made into anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I set my face against them. Though they have come out of the fire, yet the fire will consume them. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus, I will make the land desolate because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord God. It begins with a grapevine, alone in a forest. Well, not alone, but one grapevine in the forest, surrounded by a bunch of stately trees. The trees are far grander. They're far more powerful than a grapevine, obviously. Moreover, the wood of that grapevine is of terrible quality, like all grapevine wood is, especially in comparison to the fine wood you get off of old-growth trees. And that's the comparison being made here. But it gets worse than that because this particular vine has been burned on both ends, leaving only the middle of the wood remaining, and even that's been charred. So now it's utterly useless, having been burned. Now the vine represents Israel, which is a common picture in Scripture. Vine wood, vines, and uh, grapevines are a common picture of the nation of Israel. God applies that in the chapter. We see Him make that application. We don't have to guess. So the vine is Israel, and when you compare Israel's strength to the strength of its surrounding neighbors, Israel's a weak nation. It's small. It's insignificant. And when you look at its neighbors, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt. Others, they're all more numerous, more powerful, mightier than Israel. So what was it that allowed Israel to prosper under those circumstances? Well, the only thing that allowed Israel to contend with those powers was God. God's might, acting on behalf of Israel, protected them in the face of those kinds of enemies. But the question that the allegory is raising is, what if God were to withhold his protection? What if he withdrew that Protection. What kind of chance did Israel have against such powerful adversaries? They have no inherent strength. They have no inherent worth or value. They have no way they can assure their own safety. In fact, as the allegory depicts, Israel has already been twice burned by the first two waves of attack from Babylon. That's the picture of burning on both ends. Two-thirds of the city have been captured. You know, This is what's already taken place. See, this one-third of the city that's remaining is the middle part of the stick, and it's been charred. It's been damaged. So the message of chapter 15 is pretty straightforward. You exiles, you have no reason to be confident that you will have future success against Babylon. Because first, it's obvious you have no inherent ability to beat them. So if you're thinking about it from the standpoint of simply your own might, it's a hopeless set of circumstances. I mean, you've already been decimated, and Babylon's the most powerful nation on earth, by far, at that point. So if you've already lost twice to the big bad guy you know, on the block... 
No reason to think you're going to prevail if he comes back a third time. Which then leads to the second conclusion of chapter 15, which is, if the nation is too weak to prevail, even in the first battle, if they've already lost twice, then clearly they've lost because the Lord withdrew his hand. That's the only conclusion you can make, right? Clearly the Lord's not protecting them. And after two defeats, you have no reason to assume he's going to start protecting you for attack number three. So the Lord says in verse 6, Babylon is like a forest fire that the Lord has set loose in the forest to consume his people. And the Lord says he has given the inhabitants of Jerusalem over to Babylon as fuel for the fire. He says that in the allegory. Making the land desolate. So the, the excuse that Israel was giving to themselves was, we don't have anything to worry about because our covenant with the Lord is going to ensure our protection. And God says, well, if you just look at the facts on the page of what you're dealing with right now, it's obvious that I'm not protecting you. You know, you shouldn't be hard to see this. That's what chapter 15 is about. You're not being protected. You're being consumed by my choice, by God's choice. But God still needs to deal with this misconception that a covenant relationship obligates him to deliver on his promises, but on their terms. You know, there's a lot of believers, I find, who think this way about God in other contexts. We recognize the terms of our agreement, so to speak, the promises that we've been made, the things that are coming for us, but we want to rush the timetable. We want them on our terms. You know, the, the Bible talks about us having eternal blessing, having riches in heaven, etc. And then we hear false teachers come along and tell us, oh, no, no, you can have them now. And we call it prosperity. And it's a lie. It's this idea that I can take general thought of promise in some form and I can put it in my own terms and declare it when I want it, under what terms I want it, and God's obligated to do what I want like he's a genie. All right, that's, that's not just bad theology, that's idiocy. That's, that's forgetting who God is and who we are. And in the way that Israel was working with God, they had that misconception as well. So what happens in chapter 16 now in the second allegory is God now explains why the covenant relationship that he has with them wouldn't be a shield for them. On the contrary, it's the reason why they're going to be defeated. The irony is, the very thing they're pointing to for their rescue is the reason why God is in the business of bringing judgment against them at all. The old covenant promised Israel great blessings in a future kingdom, but it also included severe penalties for that nation when they disobeyed. So now, by Ezekiel's day, Israel had been disobeying for centuries, and they had rebelled despite all their warnings and so on. So now they are due something that God is bringing. And chapter 16 uses another type of covenant, a marriage covenant, to work as an allegory for the covenant problem that Israel has now with the Lord. So the Lord is going to compare his relationship with Israel to that of a husband to an adulterous wife. How many of you know this chapter? Okay, well, you don't know what you're getting into here then. Um, in the allegory, the Lord is the husband. Israel is his wife, sometimes called the wife of Jehovah. Uh, the Lord is portrayed as a husband who has graciously and lovingly extended a marriage covenant to his wife. Nevertheless, the wife spurns his love and deals treacherously with him in repeated and terrible ways. And so the Lord responds to the wife's treachery in harsh but just ways, hoping to restore her in repentance. The warning I need to give you here is the allegory is famous for its uncharacteristically rough language. Some have even called this chapter semi-pornographic 
because of Ezekiel's graphic descriptions. I believe the language is so strong because the Lord wanted to make a strong impression, but just as a warning, it may offend sensitive ears in some places. We'll move through it, I hope, in a way that's, that's edifying. Let's go to Ezekiel 16.1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. All right, we'll pause there because we need to set the, t- uh, the context of what he's saying and start to follow the uh, allegory as we move through it. So the allegory begins with the Lord reminding Israel of their humble origins. That is, he describes the birth of an unwanted child, and that child pictures specifically the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He says that here, Jerusalem. But obviously all Israel is in view, not just one city. But it's because that city is being singled out for the coming judgment. The next wave of attack is focused on what's left of Jerusalem. It's because that's what we're talking about that he centers the allegory on that group of people. But it's obvious that he's thinking more generally about Israel. So the Lord says Israel and her capital city were first born out of Canaan. And you know what he means by that? Think geographically. Jerusalem, he says, had an Amorite father and a Hittite for a mother. Now, we know the city was initially a Jebusite settlement. Jebusites are another Canaanite people. Amorites, Hittites, Jebusites, among others, these are the Canaanites that occupied the land before Joshua brought the nation of Israel in. And if you go to Genesis 10 and you look at the table of nations and the, the section in Genesis 10 that deals with the Canaanite peoples, you find that Jebusites are listed between the Amorites on one side and the Hittites on the other side. So, in effect, in this poetic way, what the Lord is emphasizing is that this city was a Canaanite city in its origins, through and through, without a hint of redeeming quality. It's like the Amorites and the Hittites got together and they got Jebusites and now we got a city. It's, it's sort of picturing the fact that it was a product of the Canaanite culture. As a f- result of that, Jerusalem was so worthy of disdain that the Lord compares the city's origins to the origins of an abandoned child. Now, in those days, if a woman did not want her baby, what she would typically do is go out into the wilderness to give birth. And she'd just leave the child to die exposed to the elements. And that's the situation he's describing here, because you're talking about a baby who, who hasn't had its cord cut properly, it hasn't been washed, it hasn't been sanitized. Those are the normal Procedures you take for a newborn baby to protect the child. None of that's being done. Instead, he says in verse 5, no one looked upon this child with compassion. It was like a child, he says, thrown into the open field, abhorred on the day that it was born. So what he's saying is Israel's capital, not as the city of Israel, but as it was originally a Jebusite city, That city was birthed out of ungodly people, just as Israel itself was. Abraham's parents were idol worshippers, Scripture testifies. So God took a man out of idolatry and a family of idolatry and a culture of idolatry and a city of idolatry, and he brought him to himself and made a people out of him. And in a similar sense, that's the history of the city of Jerusalem. Birthed out of ungodly people and circumstances, not a place of privilege, not a place of blessing, 
Not a very valuable city, not a very desirable city. I want you to remember that when Joshua brought the people into the land, they didn't even look twice at Jerusalem. They didn't even try to take the city. They just walked right past it. It had no interest to them. They never even thought of taking the city, and I assume it's probably because it was a despised place and had not much value. It was only centuries later when the Lord directed David to take the city and make it Israel's capital that it became beloved. Before that, no big deal. Had the city been left to itself then, we would have to assume it would eventually died like the child abandoned in the field, like all the rest of the Canaanite cities did. Only because the Lord took pity on it and determined to rescue the city did it become something special and prosper. And that's what he says next, verse 6. He says, When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, Live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, Live. I made you numerous, like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. All right, this is the next stage of the allegory. He says, I passed by, I took note of you, thinking both of the people of Israel in the form of Abraham and his descendants and the city. He describes it as squirming in its blood, very graphic description. It's a way of saying, you know, if a child was truly in that set of circumstances, how long does that child live? Hours, right? Something like that, maybe a little longer, but not long. So if it's squirming in its blood, it's a way of saying there's a moment of opportunity. It's in jeopardy. God has got a moment to save it, and he does. He comes and he, he takes the city, and, and in the case of the numerous people here, we're talking now about Israel generally, he takes the people and makes them numerous from nothing to something. And then he begins to move forward in time and compares it to a young girl. He says, like a young girl, the city and its people grew up and matured, and at a certain point, the people of Israel reached, quote, marrying age which the Lord pictures here by a child reaching puberty. But that part of the allegory pictures Israel being formed, first by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then, as you remember with the promise he gave to Abraham, he says, it's going to take a few years before I give you what I'm promising you. And in the meantime, you're going to be captive of people that are your enemies. Right? He says, for 400 years, you're going to have to be captive. You're going to eventually come back here again. Why did he do that? Well, the short answer is because he put them in a place where they could incubate away from Canaanite idolatry completely segregated in Goshen, away from any potential that they could be corrupted by the Amorites. But he says, when the iniquity of the Amorites is complete, that is, when I'm ready to put them out, then I will bring you back. But here's the thing. A family of 70 people can't conquer the land of Canaan. But a people of 2 million can. So he took 70 people out, brought 2 million or so back, and that was what he needed to conquer the land. And that's why they needed 400 years or so of generation of time for the for the generations to grow. And that's pictured here by the time he waits for a young baby to become a woman ready for marriage. And if you remember, as he brings them out of Egypt, what event followed right after that? It's the moment at which he then takes Israel and marries her, so to speak, through a covenant at the mountain. Here in the analogy, he says she's naked and bare. Now, at first, that sounds a bit provocative, especially when it's preceded by the word breast a little earlier, and our mind starts to wonder what he's talking about. But Trust me, it's not meant to be risque. Notice he says, yet you were naked and bare. What he's saying there is he's not speaking about something attractive or enticing. He's saying something shameful. Yet you were naked and bare. In other words, it goes back to the fall in the garden. Nakedness in the Bible is associated with shame because of sin. Sin puts us in a position of debt before God. Our sin debt 
requires a payment. And the Bible says the payment is death, the second death. And so at the moment of the first sin, as you remember from chapter 3 of Genesis, when Adam and woman um, disobeyed, you remember what the first thing they noticed about themselves, the first reaction they had was this uh, instinctive sense of jeopardy before a just and holy God, which is why they hid from Him. And that instinct of jeopardy manifested in their body as a feeling of shame for being naked. Because God uses this instinct, I think, in order to convey a a lesson to us about sin. That is, we are uncovered now, and therefore in jeopardy, we need covering or atonement in order to be right with God. And so he installed into the conscience of mankind this innate instinctive appreciation of jeopardy which manifests physically as a shame over our nakedness. And so forevermore in Scripture, nakedness physically becomes a great picture or example of spiritual jeopardy, spiritual exposure before a just God who must judge us. And because we inherit our sin nature from Adam, we also inherit our instinctive feelings of shame for nakedness. Now, if you're really determined, you can sear your conscience and lose some of that sense of shame, but it doesn't change the reality of your sin for sure. But God gives you that as a, as a way of understanding the need for atonement. So as Israel is ready now for a suitor, she is naked and bare. She needs someone to come cover the shame of her sin. And the Lord comes in mercy and grace to do that for her. Look at the next section, verse 8. He says, Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet, and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necktie, a necklace rather, around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. To keep moving quickly through our Allegory, he talks about establishing Israel as a nation, as he did through that covenant. And he speaks here of establishing that relationship as if it were like going into marriage. By the time the nation reaches that point, they had become numerous as plants of the field, like he says, and they had matured to the point that he's ready to make them a nation. That's the effective result of the covenant, by the way. The effective result of the covenant God gave to Israel at Sinai was he established them as a nation. A simple way to understand that is their covenant at the Mount Sinai moment is equivalent to our constitution. It's a set of laws that defined a people, a nation, and in their case, a theocracy under the authority of God. It had other purposes, I know, but that's, that's its effect on the people at the time. And he gives them this covenant as a means of blessing them in that way. It covers their sin and shame. You think how that works, right? The law that's part of that covenant gave opportunity for Israel to engage in a sacrificial system which would cover their sin and shame in a temporary sense, leading them to Christ for the ultimate covering. He uses again the marriage ceremony. He talks about acting as a husband, spreading his skirt over Israel. There's another place in the Bible I'm thinking some of you may remember. What's another book of the Bible where spreading a husband spreads his skirt over a woman to indicate a marriage? Yeah, Ruth. 
right? In Ruth 3.8, it says, It happened in the middle of the night that a man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So she says to him, Spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. She just invited him to make a marriage proposal. Right? And so what the Lord says in a similar way is, I married you. I spread my skirt over you. So at that moment, Israel, above all peoples on the earth, would be God's people, his wife. I mean, think about the privilege that that implies, right? He put Israel in a privileged and unique place, completely undeserved, as the word grace would indicate, right? Metaphorically, he says it's as someone passed by, washed the infant, and then when it was old enough, married it and took him into his home and cared for her. And then later he anoints her in oil, he clothes her in fine linen and silk and expensive leather sandals, he gives her tokens of marriage like bracelets and rings and nose rings and so on, um, making her even more beautiful than she was. And she gets wealth of gold and silver, she eats the best of the land. I mean, this is a woman, metaphorically, who could not have asked for more, for better treatment, more love, more attention, more blessing. And God's using a metaphor to explain what he did, but it's, it's a literal comparison when you think of the way he treated Israel, giving her the best of everything. It's probably a reference to the Solomonic period of Israel's history when they were at the height, the apex of what God did for them in this age. No nation before or since the Solomonic period has equaled Israel's strength and glory and riches, according to the scriptures. Israel was exceedingly beautiful, and her fame went before all the nations. You remember the Queen of Sheba? She was so impressed by what was going on in Solomon's kingdom, she traveled a long distance just to see what was going on. Right? The Lord said, I did all of these things for you just out of my covenant love for you, bestowed upon you out of my mercy. Entirely based on my power, entirely based on my mercy. That is to say, apart from God, the city and the people would have died out, they never would have survived, they never would have even existed, nothing would have been theirs. Now notice in verse 13, at the end, the Lord adds that the nation was advanced to royalty. That's a very confusing way to to translate the Hebrew. A better translation would be headed to kingdom prosperity. They were on their way, so to speak, to seeing the glory of the kingdom that they were promised. They were headed to kingdom glory, headed to prosperity. And once Israel's Messiah arrived, as would happen, of course. He would have been received by them because they would have been walking with the Lord and in glory, I mean, in obedience and ready for their Messiah. And he would have come and they would have received him and he would have set up the kingdom and there were the glory of Israel would have entered in and it would all been just as God planned it in that sense. Planned is probably the wrong word. Everything's as God planned it. But it would have been as the script would have expected, right? So things were going really well for Israel at that point, all because of God's grace and mercy. And then the wheels fell off. Then the good times come to an end. Verse 15. But, that's when you know it's bad, when he throws in that word. But, you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes and made for yourself high places of various colors and played the harlot on them which should never come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. And then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them. Also, my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey, 
with which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters, whom you had borne to me, and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. Then it came about, after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God, that you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable, and you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. Behold, now I have stretched out my hand against you and diminished your rations. I've delivered you up to the desire of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who are ashamed of your lewd conduct. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea. Yet even with this you were not satisfied. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God. While you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot... When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high place in every square in disdaining money, you were not like a harlot. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all harlots, but you give your gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. Thus, you are different from those women in your harlotries in that no one pays the harlot as you do because you give money and no money is given to you. Thus, you are different. You feel like he's a little annoyed? <laughs> you know, when you annoy the living God, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I mean, you just have to appreciate how serious this is. And you've all heard the saying, right? Pride goeth before the fall. Well, God starts by saying that Israel's ascent to her place of privilege among all the nations ultimately led to a moment of pride. That is, because of her fame, he says, the nation played the harlot. Now, the word harlot, as you probably know, means prostitute. So that's important here because we're not just talking about a wife being seduced by another man and committing adultery. That's bad enough. The Lord here, though, is talking about something even more depraved and senseless. He's describing Israel, his wife, as selling herself out to others rather than remaining faithful to her husband, who has done so much for her. Uh, remember, she was rescued, he says, from abandonment from ador- and then adorned with all these beautiful, wonderful things. She's turned from that. And instead of honoring him for his love, she rents herself out to anyone who might be willing to have her, spreading her legs, as he says, in that graphic way. It's just the most absurd turn of events. I mean, if any woman you knew had actually lived through this, you'd have her committed. She's insane, right? There's something wrong with her head. Adultery is bad enough, but at least at some level we might understand it, even if we completely disagree with it, right? But would you understand a woman who's under these circumstances and then becomes a prostitute? Oh, and by the way, she doesn't take money. She pays her suitors. What What in the world is she doing? Well, we come back to that detail. The harlotry is obviously a picture of idolatry. We all got that, right? Of worshiping other gods. And that's a common comparison in the Bible. Prostitution to idolatry. Now, how many of you have ever thought that it was adultery was the picture for, for uh, idolatry? It's a common thought. You know, idol- I cheat on my husband, the Lord. That's not the one the, 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 the Bible uses. The Bible uses prostitution as a picture, not adultery. And here's why. 
because prostitution uh, works as a comparison on numerous levels with what idolatry actually involves. First, it should remind you that your relationship with the Lord is the only proper worship relationship you should have. So, in other words, uh, a wife who remains devoted to her husband is a picture of us having eyes for no one else in the sense of our worship. But when and if we stray into worshiping other gods, and I, I will acknowledge that in our culture and in our time, this is not common. That is to say that a Christian would suddenly start worshiping Buddha and claim that Jesus is not God after all. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I'm saying that's what we're talking about here. A shift of view for who God is. That's what idolatry include, uh, involves. When you do that, you're playing a harlot or a prostitute because you're not merely committing adultery. You're not merely cheating on God. More specifically, like prostitution, idolatry is not about love. Idolatry is not about love, although adultery sometimes can be perceived as such. Prostitution is never about love. And remember, love in the Bible is a verb, not a noun. It's a selfless action. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. Okay? So... False idols cannot love us. False gods have no action, no words, no movement, no power. They cannot do anything to, in terms of action, love us. So in idolatry, there's no exchange of love involved. They can't serve us. They can't do anything for us. And we can't show them any love either because there's no response. And so we don't respond in idolatry out of love. We Human beings pursue idolatry out of other intents like greed or pride, or selfishness. We want something from our idols. That's why we pursue them. Just as a prostitute seeks payment from her clients. So it's a kind of counterfeit relationship. It gives the appearance of genuine love, but it lacks the substance of it. It's a transaction. It's one that trades the infinite love and grace of the true living God for some temporary vain promise of an earthly imitation God. So in the case of Israel's idolatry, the Lord says it went a step further, as I just mentioned. She didn't get anything for her prostitution because she paid her clients. It's, you know, in that section I read from 31 to 34, he starts by saying, you know, men typically have to pay their harlot. Uh, Israel paid her lovers because she had to bribe them. That is to say, she gave things to her idols. She sacrificed money, jewels. She took things out of the temple, robbing them of their ornaments and their linen and their uh, other fine things that God gave him gave them for worship. They took their gifts and offerings, the grain offerings and the field offerings, and they put those before idols instead of God. That's wealth they turned over to the gods, so to speak. They took their own children and gave them to the gods, he says. So all of those things are an evidence of, of Israel doing something completely inconceivable, much like you would see a woman who tra trades a good husband for the chance to be a harlot without making anything out of it, giving everything away. The nation's suitors included her worst enemies, people like Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. So the Lord says, you've already started to suffer penalties because of this stuff. Verse 27, he says, you've seen your rations reduced. I love these little pieces here for a second because they really complete the allegory. He's alluding back to the husband and wife situation. Did you know that in ancient times, a husband served as the master over his household and included having mastery over his wife? But what that meant was his authority being absolute... If a wife openly disobeyed his, his command or his orders or did the kind of thing Israel's doing here, he could impose penalties on her. One of the penalties that he could have imposed upon her was reducing her rations. That is to say, it's like sending your child to bed without dinner. 
He could have used that as a penalty to persuade or encourage his wife into repentance and obedience. And in that culture, it was, it was an acceptable way for the husband to uh, express his authority. Now, in the case of Israel, how did he take away their rations? He caused them to experience deprivation under the captivity that they knew in exile. So they would have had plenty if they'd stayed in the land in obedience. Now they're in deprivation in exile. Then the reference to them being delivered into the hands of the enemies, that also has a marriage parallel. We obviously know what it means historically, right? They went into exile. But again, a husband could literally bar his wife from her home for a time, forcing her to live off the street or to be taken in by somebody else. And typically the only kind of person who would take in and give shelter to a disgraced wife would be a man willing to take advantage of her, uh, who would treat her effectively as a harlot. And that's what the Lord means here by saying, I turn Israel over to her enemies. That is to say, to the very people whose gods Israel was willing to worship, I kicked you out of the house so that you only have them now to take care of you. You wanted them, you got them. Now, of course, that's a harsh and usually last resort kind of response by a husband who can't seem to get through to his wife on any other level. Because in that day and age, if you got kicked out of the house as a woman, you had no recourse. You were going to be in dire straits pretty quickly. It was a very dramatic step to get someone's attention. And similarly for Israel, this is a dramatic step. So in verse 20, when he asked them, you know, are your harlotries any small matter? The answer is no, it's a huge matter. And so how would you expect the Lord to respond? Remember, they're using the excuse that Ezekiel's promise of coming judgment wasn't going to touch them because they were a covenant people. And so now the Lord's saying, well, how do you expect me to respond to you when you spurn me in this covenant? I mean, this covenant either means something or it doesn't. I mean, you've taken everything good that I've given you, which I've promised, but now you're saying that all the other consequences for disobedience will be ignored? He says, you forgot your origins in verse 22. You forgot, you've lost your sense of gratitude and awe. I will end on the teaching tonight with this basic point. What you see Israel doing here, this idea of having been lifted up in glory by a loving and gracious God, seeing that turn to vanity and pride and become then the genesis for sin against the very one who's done such great things. That is a classic pattern in Scripture. First, always comes God's provision of grace and blessing. Then from there, vanity. Then from there, sin is conceived out of pride. Uh, later in this book, in, verse, in chapter 28, we get to a section of Ezekiel that's pretty well known because it tells the story of Satan's fall. And we'll cover it in detail when we get there. But let me just read a few verses for you. Keep in mind the pattern I just described. See if you can find it in Satan's history. Verse 14 of Ezekiel 28. The Lord speaking to Satan says, You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade... You were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. So Satan was given the most privileged position of all God's creation. He was the anointing cherub. Remember Hebrews tells us that we have a tabernacle in Israel that was patterned off a heavenly tabernacle that exists in the throne room of God. And 
Just as we know that there was a mercy seat on top of an ark sitting in the Holy of Holies on earth, that's a pattern. So in the heavenly tabernacle, there is likewise a mercy seat unto Jesus walked in after his ascension, and, or after his uh, resurrection, rather, and sprinkled his own blood there, applying, as Hebrews said, his blood to the mercy seat in the heavenly tabernacle, atoning once for all sin. Okay? Well, on the earthly one, you have two golden cherub fashioned on this mercy seat, their arms, or their wings, rather, over the center, creating a little cavity under their wings in the center of the mercy seat. And that's where God's Shekinah glory would appear for, for the priests when they went into the Holy of Holies. Again, it's a pattern of what's in heaven. Only what's in heaven isn't gold cherubs. It was literal cherubs. And who got the cherry position to be the cherub to cover God's glory in the heavenly tabernacle? Guess who that was? Satan. He's the covering cherub. And because he was the closest created, the Bible says elsewhere in chapter 28 of Ezekiel that he was the most beautiful thing God ever made. So his beauty was the greatest in all creation. His privilege was the greatest in all creation. He was literally, physically speaking, the closest thing in creation to God's glory. And based on what you read in that chapter, as I said, we'll get there in a few weeks, but when we get there, you're going to see that the text suggests very strongly that what, is he, what happened to Satan was he's sitting there. These are my words, but it's effectively what the story tells. He's standing over this and he's thinking to himself, you know, I could just sit right there. I could just take the job. I'm right here. I just, you know, I'll just, I'll be God. And that's when, by the abundance of his trade, trade means his profession. By the abundance of his trade, it says you were internally filled with violence. Violence is taking something by force. So he tried to take glory of God by force. He wanted to be God. And he was thrown down from that place. So his heart, it says, was lifted up because of his beauty and he corrupted his wisdom by reason of his splendor. That is the first sin of all creation, of course. It's what led to the rest. But it sets the pattern. Because what Satan did, Adam did the same thing. Adam was in a place of immense beauty, perfection. All that he needed was provided. God's grace was on display everywhere he looked. He had one rule. Only one rule. And though the scriptures don't talk a lot about his fall, it's evident in what we can see that uh, he did not remember where he came from, much as Israel is said to have forgotten her origins. He lost sight of his dependence on God and on God's grace to him and acted as if he could do what he wanted with impunity and effectively define for himself what was right and wrong. And in that he sinned. And what Satan did and what Adam did, Israel has done. And what they've done, we do too, or potentially. Not that we all commit idolatry, that's just a particular sin. Our sins may differ, but the engine for our sin is always the same. Pride. It begins when we think we can exist and act and prosper independent of God. That's pride in a nutshell. That we have some inherent worth. Inherent power, inherent glory, and we assume that no one but ourselves can dictate for ourselves what our life should have, and we make our own gods effectively in that way. When a believer falls into the trap of pride, we inevitably inevitably will begin to sell ourselves out, much as Israel did to its suitors, in the world. And look, there's, there's a basic natural course here you can't avoid. If you are not serving God through obedience, your only other option, the only thing that's left, is to serve the world. And if you're serving the world, guess who owns the world right now? Right? Satan. That he is the prince of the power of the air. 
And the prince of this world knows how to manipulate our pride to bring us into all manner of sin. So it's this struggle that's a continual problem, as you know, but it's the matter of who you obey is who you serve. And in pride, the way pride works is we put ourselves in the position of the one to be worshipped. That is to say, we make ourselves our own God. If this happens to you, or when this happens to you, don't be surprised to find the Lord beginning to treat you like a husband dealing with a treacherous wife. Not in the same ways he does with Israel necessarily. It's going to differ. But he'll, ma- he'll act in measured ways to bring us to repentance so that the relationship can hopefully be restored. He'll never put an end to the relationship. No, no more than he did to Israel will he would do it for us. But he may pass us through some difficult times. Hebrews says that if he does not discipline his children, it would be like we were illegitimate children. And why did he do it to Israel? To purge out of their spirit a desire for idolatry. Why would he do anything to us? The same thing. To purge out of us a desire to let our pride give us the thought that we can exist apart from him and do as we wish. Okay, that's where we're going to end tonight. Let's pray together. Father, uh, please guide us, Father, in our lives as we think about these things. I ask, Father, for guidance in how we um, consider our pride. I ask for guidance, Father, in how we uh, forget our origins. No, no one in this room, Father, was born a believer. No one in this room, Father, was uh, worthy of the grace that we've received. None of us, Father, have any reason to see ourselves as an inherently worthy or, or righteous in any regard, except that because we have been made a child of God by faith, we now have your righteousness. We have your power. We have an infinite worth made possible by Christ living in us. Thank you, Father, for those gifts. Do not let us spurn them and trade them for worthless things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.